It's good to see everybody here this uh, morning. I, you know, we had a bass and baritone and alto and tenor and soprano, and uh, the only thing we were missing was a little tuning, and then we would have been just perfect. So we do appreciate that. It is a, a privilege to be here this morning. Would you open your Bibles up to John chapter 4? John chapter 4, we're going to look at the last 11 verses of that chapter. If you're using the Bibles provided, that's on page 913 if you're not used to looking at a Bible. Um, But we are in a series called Signs of Life, where we are going through the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Now, as I mentioned last week, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Sin meaning together, optic meaning seeing. They're the three Gospels that see things together. If you read through the Bible straight through, you start at Genesis and you read through to Revelation, um, then when you read Mark, you'll think, I think I've seen some of this before. Then when you get to Luke, you'll think, I know I've seen some of this before. And uh, then you get to John and you say, I've never seen this before. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are closely intertwined. They each give a different angle at the same portrait of Jesus. But the Gospel of John was written much, much later when everybody already knew the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John comes along to shed more theological light on the basic things people already knew. Uh, It wasn't necessary for John to talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem because by 90 AD, everybody that read the Gospel of John already knew Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So John gives us a lot of really interesting things. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have got huge numbers of miracles, but John has got just seven. And these seven miracles are not the ordinary word for miracle, dunamis, which means power, but the word sign. Because John doesn't include every miracle Jesus did. He includes the miracles that point most clearly toward who Jesus was. Last week, we looked at that first sign where Jesus turned the water into wine in the, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And when we saw that, we saw that Jesus is the kind of God who makes a change, who takes the old and makes it new. You know, that's, one, that's such a precious, precious truth. It's something we sing about and think about. Um, you know, one of my uh, favorite gospel songs is the cathedral song, He Made a Change. He made a change the way I walk. He made a change the way I talk. Old things passed away. Behold, everything's new. He made a change in the life I'm living. I'm born again, set free, finally forgiven. If he can make a change in me, he can make a change in you. Isn't that something fantastic to know? God can make a change. The God who could turn dirty water into wine is the God who can change your heart. That's the first thing we saw about Jesus. Now we move a little farther along, and we come to this interesting story. And it's interesting because there's a very similar miracle that's told in the Synoptic Gospels. And if you don't read carefully you'll think, oh, this is the same one. It's not. It is a a different incident with the same situation. So let's look now in verse 46 of John chapter 4. I'm going to read through this uh, account to you. And then, I'm sorry, 43. Verse 43 is where I'd like to start. Um, And I'm going to read through this account to you, and then we're going to look at it piece by piece. He says, now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee, where Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Now Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, 
he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And he was as now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour, but he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are the great, the mighty God, that you are the God that when you speak, whether you say your son lives and he's healed, or whether you say let there be light and there's light, you're the God who speaks and it comes to pass. You're the God who speaks light into the darkness of our hearts. You're the God who is all-powerful, all-authoritative, all-knowing, all-sovereign. And we just ask God that as we think of this concept of faith, that we would trust you at your word, that we wouldn't look for a feeling or a sign, but that we would take you at your word and believe what you say. God, I ask that you would help us to develop that trusting faith in you even now, that we would be more like your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So we are back in Cana, um, and it's, it's kind of interesting. The other seven miracles are not numbered. You remember after we read the miracle at Cana in chapter 2, he said this was the first of the signs that Jesus performed. Here it says it was the second. Now, it wasn't his second miracle. It's the, uh, if you read through, it actually says he did many miracles uh, before this. But it's the second miracle in John's list. But the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh are not numbered in the gospel. Now, that tells us something immediately. John expects us to put the wedding at Cana and this healing of the nobleman's son side by side. He wants us to see how they connect. Now, it's kind of interesting. We see he comes from Capernaum. And, well, let me, let me go ahead and go back here to the top. There's one difficulty here I want to point out before we really get into the meat of what we were going to talk about. In verse 43, it says, Now after two days he departed thence. That means he departed Samaria. If you're familiar with the story of the woman at the well, that takes place at the beginning of John chapter 4. He's left Samaria and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now, there's a problem with that when you read that, if you, if you think about it for a second. Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. Where is Jesus' country? Galilee. Galilee is the state that he's from. So why does it say that he went from out of Samaria into, Cain, into Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country? It gets even worse because the very next verse says, uh, then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they went unto the feast also. They also went unto the feast. So it says, Jesus said, a prophet has no honor except in his own country, kind of the equivalent of what we say today, familiarity breeds contempt. He said, I'm a, a prophet's honored everywhere except in his hometown. And then it says, Jesus went into his home region and they received him because they'd heard about the miracles that he did. You say, well, that's really strange. 
uh, some liberal uh, scholars, uh, theologically liberal, say, oh, well, this is proof that somebody came along later and just sort of added things here and there because they wanted it to be something else. Of course, that's not true. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, Peter says that holy, the holy men and the prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. This is, God put this in here very deliberately on purpose. And let me tell you what's happening. Jesus, what Jesus said is true, that he received no honor in Galilee. They welcomed him because they heard about the miracles. If you come to God looking for a handout, you have not really accepted God. They did not accept Jesus. They accepted what they thought Jesus could do for them. How many people do you know that are like that? How many people do you know that when a crisis comes, suddenly here they are on the front row kneeling down, God, you got to help me with this. God, you got to help me with this. And then when the crisis is resolved, they say, thanks a lot, God. See you next time. You know, we treat God like the emergency room. You don't go there for regular checkups. You just go there, you know, you can't handle this on your own. And that's exactly what happened here in Galilee, is they heard about these miracles Jesus was performing. They said, wow, we, we need some of that. You know, the wedding at Cana had been a secret at the time, but surely the servant's word had gotten out after that. And now Jesus is coming back for the first time, and they've heard about that, and they've heard about the miracles that he had done in Judea. And they said, wow, this, our own If he did this kind of stuff out and about, what will our own homegrown son do here? But they didn't really accept him. He had no honor in his own country. You say, well, wait a minute. Still, it says he went to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country. You would say, well, that's a good reason not to go. If they're not going to respect me there, if they're not going to honor me there, if they're not really going to accept me there, I'm wasting my time. That's not the way that Jesus operates. Jesus didn't go around looking for glory where he could get it. No. Humility is such a strange, strange trait. It was Benjamin Franklin who said that humility is the most uh, difficult of all virtues because as soon as you realize you've got it, you've lost it. uh, I read a book um, recently called Humilitas, which is the Greek word for humility. And uh, the author of the book said that, you know, how does somebody write a book on humility? You know, how, how can you come and say, I'm an authority to write a book on humility? And he said he finally had to come to the point that he could write about it because he had an objective distance from the subject. You know, it's, it's something that we, we have such a hard time grasping. But one of the things this book brought out was that in the ancient world, humility was not a positive thing. If somebody was described as humble, it was an insult throughout history. Uh, In the ancient Greek world, if you start reading some of the things Greek writers wrote, they are not shy about telling you about their accomplishments. Um, Augustus wrote his own epitaph for when he died, and it's about 10 pages long and lists 25 of his most important accomplishments. Uh, Josephus, a famous Jewish writer, he wrote Antiquities of the Jews. Um, He's the one of the best sources we have for Jewish politics at the time, if you can cut out the fact that everything he writes is to make Josephus look good. But he has, there's no blushing in the ancient world because they believed honor was the greatest thing. 
And if you deserved honor, you should get it, whether you got it from yourself or somebody else. That's how they thought about uh, honor. But Jesus comes along. This is really, really fascinating. Secular scholars, everybody agrees that humility was not accepted as a virtue until Christianity took hold. Because the effect of Jesus, what does Philippians 2 say? To be like Jesus, who, uh, well, to, to have the same mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who, bearing the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself taking the form of a man, becoming obedient, uh, becoming humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus comes along and Jesus says, no, pride, honor are no longer the good things. He says humility is the good thing. And whether you're a Christian or not, the reason you believe that humility is good and pride is bad is because Jesus shaped the way the entire world thinks. So Jesus didn't go to Galilee or Nazareth looking for honor. He went there because he knew he wouldn't be honored there, and he could accomplish his purpose by being dishonored. Are you willing to be humiliated if it gets God's work done? I don't remember who it was. Somebody said there's no limit to what a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And the most effective people, there was an author uh, who wrote a book called Good to Great where he studied the successful corporations. It's a fantastic book. Uh, it's, It's great. But um, he said that when you looked at the companies that were very good, he called them level four leaders. When you look at the companies that were very good, their leaders were proud and difficult to work with and things, but were smart and effective. He said, but when you look at the companies that were great, he said that their leaders were marked by a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. He said that of the 13 Companies, I believe it was. It may have, it, I'm not sure exactly about exact number. But he looked at these companies that over a 10-year period had more than tripled what the general stock market had done. And every single one of their leaders was constantly described by their employees as being humble. Now, where does that come from? They're now, corporate books that have nothing to do with Christianity talk about servant leadership. Where does that come from? That came from Jesus, whether they know it or not. So if you want to see the power of humility, you want to see the effect humility has, look at Jesus. You know, some of the greatest heroes. Um, if I tell you a story about a, somebody who is arrogant, um, a good, a, well, a, a kind of a classic example is uh, Galileo. Um, Galileo was a great scientist, the father of modern science. But when he didn't body. He refused to work with them and blocked anybody else from working with them either because he was so arrogant. Now, immediately, nothing has changed about all the laws of physics that Galileo discovered. But your opinion of him just dropped by a notch, didn't it? Isaac Newton, force equals mass times acceleration. Isaac Newton, uh, one of the two discoverers of Leibniz, um, both of whom wrote more on uh, theology than they did on science, as a little side note there. Um, Leibniz, the main discoverer of calculus, in my opinion, um, and holding a bachelor's degree in math, I'm qualified to make major history of math decrees. Um, Leibniz wrote a book called Theodicy, a massive tone, ex- tome um, explaining how a good God allows evil, how God works all things together for good. Brilliant, brilliant people. Leibniz, who maybe you've never heard of before if you don't care about math, uh, 
breaks my little heart. Leibniz, that you don't know about him as the inventor of calculus, even though he made some of the major discoveries before Newton did, because he did not care who got the credit. And when you hear about that immediately, your opinion of him, if you'd heard of him before, goes up a little bit. Isaac Newton had a fight with somebody when he was the chair of the Royal Academy of Sciences. After he had this fight, this great father of science also, went through and had had the fights with name from every record, past and future that they had. So this scientist's achievements were almost lost to history. What does that do to your opinion of Isaac Newton? Doesn't it? Humility is compelling. And Jesus modeled it. So why is it that we have such a hard time with that? Why is it that we struggle so much with this concept of lowering ourselves? Well, we've got a sin nature that says, I, 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 I. You know, the, the Bible says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind. What's the pattern of this world? The pattern of this world is I, 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 I. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What does society say to you every day? You deserve this. This is for you. You've earned this. Go pat yourself on the But then Jesus comes along and he says, sit at the low place of honor so you can be invited up. God, he said, James, Jesus' brother, says, God resisteth the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's just something about the character of Jesus, where he goes the places where he knows he won't be loved, where he knows he won't be expect, accepted, where he knows he won't get the honor he deserves. That's the power of Jesus. Now, that's not one of miracles, but for one of us to do that would be a miracle. So Jesus here is going to a place out of sheer humility where he's going to be dishonored. Why is that important? Let's go just a little farther now. It says in uh, verse 47, well, I'm sorry, verse 46, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. There's a man, and he, he is from Capernaum, and his son is sick there. I've got some pictures of Capernaum to try to illustrate something to you about the, the scope of the city. I don't have any pictures of Cana. There's a city in Cana now, and so none of the ruins are there. But uh, do we have those, Sister Lisa? No? Okay. They didn't 